Uh, <laughs> hello and welcome to the Principalities and the Pastorate podcast. This is only like the fourth episode, so I keep forgetting the name. I am your host, Corey, and I am joined today by Mike Martin, uh, the hello. CEO, founder of Raw Tools uh, out of Colorado Springs. And he is co-author of Beating Guns, Hope for People Weary of Violence, I believe that's the subtitle. And that was released last year, and we'll have the notes for that in the show notes. So, hi, Mike. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, This is the second time I'm interviewing you. Uh, This time we, uh, the first time we didn't really know each other that well, this time we know each other a little bit better. Yeah. And I'm excited to get to have this conversation with you. Yeah, definitely. It's great to have you a part of the Rothwells Network too. Yeah, it's a. Uh, I will. We'll definitely be talking a bit about that, um, and what that what that means in terms of resistance, in terms of uh, disruption. I think might be the right word. The word I often use. Uh, so why don't we begin um, with you kind of telling us what Raw Tools is and what you do. Yeah, so we started um, really the same time frame as Moms Demand Action. It was months after the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting. Um, the idea for Raw Tools was kind of percolating before that, but the Sandy Hook massacre became kind of the catalyzing event that everybody who was talking about it was organized and started Raw Tools. Um, raw is war backwards, so it's really turning, um, turning the tide, um, you know, we can think about it. We, we formed out of a lens of restorative justice. So restoring something that was broken into something that um, can be life-giving. And that's what we do when we turn guns into garden tools. Uh, we're inspired by the scripture that talks about um, turning swords into plowshares in Isaiah and Micah. Micah is my favorite version. Um, spears into pruning hooks, learning to have no, war no more. And then Vike, Micah ends it that we'll all sit under a vine and fig tree in fear of no other. Um, and so we kind of work a lot of our programmatic pieces around uh, swords into plowshares, guns in the garden tools, uh, war no more. We do some raw power workshops, um, teaching some different pieces of nonviolence, de-escalation, bystander intervention, restorative justice, healthy dialogue. Um, some people might be familiar with nonviolence communication, uh, things in that vein or connecting people to those resources that are already happening because the, those things are out there in many communities, but it's many of us are just not aware of them. Um, and then the Vine and Fig is the other part of the last part of our programming where um, this idea that we can be under, uh, be sheltered and have resources and not be in fear of one another um, and what kind of like interior work I have to do to be in that kind of space that Uh, we often talk about it like how can we be at a place where we can welcome people with open arms instead of bearing arms Um, and there's a lot of systemic things that that influence that do I have access to the resources that I need Um, is my community really keeping me safe or when I call in law enforcement is it just escalating the situation Um, so there's there's a lot of different things at play about what it means to be in fear of no other um, because oftentimes we're in fear of the things that are designed to keep us safe when that's not necessarily true. And especially with, with guns and firearms. So there's a, there's a lot of pieces here um, that we work into in layers where we want to engage with the different intersections of gun violence, be it suicide or mass shootings or domestic violence, um, hate crimes, police shootings. All of those things are very real and traumatic events, not just to the people that experience them, but to the communities that those people live in. A good summary. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so the thing I noticed just in your your pitch, just in your explanation, um, is just how multifaceted this all is. Um, Because we like to, we like to oversimplify in some cases and just think that, you know, when we talk about this, we're only talking about this, but, but as you were, as you were saying, as you were like introducing it, and as you were talking about it, there are always all these multiple layers on top of each other. Um, And to the point, to the point where it's almost difficult to find like the root, because we always, we keep hearing that. And I, I, I remember seeing that in your book, the talking about how it's a sin problem, not a uh, violence problem or something like that. 
um, that being that being a or a sin problem, not a gun problem. Um, right. And and I think the thing about speaking from the speaking with the language of the principalities and the powers is that recognizing that well, it's it's all of these things combined into to one weaving, writhing mass of things. Yeah. Yeah. It's that was kind of one of the main messages we wanted to get across in beating guns is that it's not just that the guns are the problem or like our hearts or bad people or violence is the problem, but that when those things are combined, it does not end well, right? Mm -hmm. That we have triggers in our streets, but also triggers in our hearts. And if we're pulling both those triggers at the same time, usually it means someone's life and, and it goes, it gets there very fast. Like it escalates to life or death very fast. So mm-hmm. if me and you are arguing and neither of us have a gun, none of us are thinking that this is a life or death situation. But if either one of us has a gun even just holstered, um, you know, that that possibility is in the back of both of our minds. We know that it's there. Um, it was interesting on uh, just talking to somebody about um, uh, this idea, uh, I believe it's called Chekhov's Principle, that if there's a play or drama and that you're nodding like you've heard about this but Mm -hmm. there if there's a a gun you know like hanging in the in a living room in this in this theater at some point during that play that gun has to be used otherwise it's just hanging there for nothing right Mm -hmm. so um the idea that guns are neutral is just as weird sounding to me as saying that people are neutral right Mm -hmm. so we've all got those violence that violence in our hearts um and when that is that capacity for violence is combined with the capacity for death of what these guns are designed for, then we've all got trouble. Yeah. And I, I think about that when I think about how often we hear, a, hear, hear lines like, well, guns, a gun is just a tool, like mm-hmm. that, that sort of thing. Um, forgetting that a tool is always designed with a purpose in mind, with a function, with a with a telos, to use the Greek, um, uh, and and this whole notion that that guns just kind of exist uh, or tools kind of exist without a purpose or without a function. That's a very postmodern way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of strips that that even that even like gets into that sense of well, humans exist for no reason. Um, which we see a lot in post-modernity and that that newer uh, way of thinking that we see quite often. Yeah, I think there's there's something to it. Um, there's this study of cyborg anthropology where um, it's often connected to our modern, like when we attach ourselves to a cell phone, we're capable of a lot more things, whether that's we can find out all kinds of information we can we are suddenly connected to all kinds of different people at the in an instant but also the idea that um, let's remove ourselves from now and think ahead you know a thousand years when people are doing archaeological digs on our current culture right what tools are they going to find and what is that going to say about us Mm -hmm. and so this idea of not just cyborg anthropology but kind of cyborg archaeology like when we look back and we're studying the anthropology of our time what are the what is that going to say about us that um this is something that's unique uniquely american right so if we buried all the guns in america now and buried all the guns in canada or um you know the uk or something they're going to tell two different stories because they're drastically different Mm -hmm. Uh, and so those are the questions people are going to be asking about us but also um we need to be aware that the gun in the corner of the room or that gun that's hanging on the wall isn't neutral. It, it has the possibilities and it's designed. There's a reason we can easily make a gun with our hand, right? Because it was functionally designed to fit just right. And, mm-hmm. and there's, there's a way of um, studying what that says about us as far as conflict resolution, um, especially when we're talking about gun violence, whether that's conflict resolution within our own, because suicide is two thirds of gun violence. That's one of the gun violence statistics that transfers not just nationally, but locally as well, right? So it's always the highest part of gun violence, but then it also talks about, 
you know, it's easier for me to just end a conflict with you at a distance with a gun than it is for me to get closer and be a lot more involved in that conflict um, or bringing my community. Maybe it's a, maybe I'm a victim and it's not comfortable for me to be with an offender and I need to bring the community involved them in that conflict resolution and guns do not help with that. It automatically escalates it to a different type of conflict. Mm -hmm. As we, uh, I, I mentioned this when we were just getting ready, uh, as we, as we saw in Kenosha last week, um, we're recording this, we're recording this the week after the Kenosha shooting. Um, and, and there we could see quite uh, blatantly uh, how bringing a gun into a situation drastically changes it in, in an instant, um, mm -hmm. turning it into a situation that didn't have to be life-threatening, didn't have to be uh, uh, violent in that way, uh, into something where two people are dead and one person lost an arm. Um, right. And one kid's life is effectively ruined. Um, mm -hmm. And, and how, how that is and how, how we get to that point. Yeah, it's, I mean, every day we seem to learn a little bit more about the Kenosha shooter and how he was raised. You know, there's pictures coming out of him holding an AR-15 or assault-style rifle at a very young age. I have a seven-year-old, and it looks like my seven-year-old is holding that gun. And there's certain, you know, when we talk about training for war no more, that, that shooter grew up training for war. Mm -hmm. And it, it's strange. It's such a strange concept for me to have that kind of atmosphere in my home with my kids. So this, this culture of violence is nurtured in us in a lot of different ways. And I think it can be as extreme. I would, I would say that the Kenosha shooter had a very extreme atmosphere of violence being um, nurtured in him from a very young age. Um, but it also can be very cultural in our American context that when we talk about the principalities and powers at play, there is a lot of um, hyper-individualism, hyper-masculinity, um, and, and this idea, you know, like the good guy with a gun versus the bad guy with a gun, that the more we talk about guns as neutral, the, the more kind of disconnected we're admitting that we are from the situation. So, and what I mean by that is guns are advertised. If, if you want to know what guns are designed for, just look at the advertisements for guns. Mm -hmm. That will show you. And that, that they've evolved from, you know, centuries ago when a Colt revolver was designed, that it went from single shot to multi-shot. Suddenly you were capable of something different than what you were before. And now we have high-capacity magazines. So the evolvement of a gun continues to get shoot faster, shoot bigger bullets, um, shoot more in one sitting kind of thing. So those things continue to evolve, yeah. um, mostly unchecked. And when we talk about, um, you know, how a gun is marketed to us, um, we're not just reinforcing the capacity of what the gun can do, but we're also reinforcing kind of the individualism and the me versus evil concept that me versus this this um horrible thing so that if i am aiming my gun at something i have already made some sort of judgment in my mind that it is less than me and therefore doesn't deserve certainly not deserve to harm me and so i'm going to continue to um one kind of build this place for me to always be above whatever i'm aiming this gun at but also foster this notion of something else that it will always be worth shooting. So I think there might've been a little bit of that. Well, probably a lot of that in the context of the Kenosha shooter, that might be a blatant example of it, but we have certainly other pop culture examples of that. Um, you know, especially in this kind of state of law and order that we're is cycling through our American context again, you know, that law and order means this thing, and so whatever that isn't, whether that's protests or rioting or looting, whatever that chaos is, we will continually make it less than ourselves so that it's okay for me to walk into Kenosha with an AR-15 and pr protect the things that I identify with. Mm -hmm. And so it seems like these two different cycles of not just reinforcing my own worth over and above others, but also reinforcing that the others lack of worth compared mm -hmm. to me.
So it, it's really, it's two very awfully kind of damning things. Like you're choosing such a, a such a, like you're idolizing yourself, you're demonizing another person. And it's just such a, um, what feels like the ultimate goal of the principalities and powers. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, in many ways, the, the, that dehumanizing factor that, that the principalities cause us to forget that other people are human and that eventually even that we are human. Right. Um, right. and cause us to forget the, the value, the inherent value of, of life versus not life. Um, mm-hmm. And so, and so, like that's that's something I think of when I think of the as we as we learn more about the Kenosha shooter and as we learn more about what it was that he went there to protect. And it's at the end of the day, property, uh, mm-hmm. things, uh, inhuman, uh, in unliving uh, things uh, that ultimately are 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 words that were insured. Um, and and for some reason, and that that I think speaks to one of the great uh, one of America's founding sins, um, not not just being slavery and racism and white supremacy, but also just being that elevation of property being either more valuable than people or as valuable as people, both of which have those distinct problems. Yeah, certainly, and in the context of racism, that being so valuable that we counted humans as property. Mm-hmm. And and yeah and and to to bounce off that even more, it's not even just that property is more important than people are as valuable as people. It's almost always white property is yeah. more valuable. Yeah, yeah. So that we commodify a non-white life mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's in terms of slavery, or we eliminate it in terms of indigenous genocide. Right. And so I think back to a few years ago. Now I don't remember when, but it was. Uh, when when there were images of the the biggest uh, tree in the Rockefeller Rockefeller Center they'd ever put up, and I saw I saw supposedly um, there were these threats going out that you know burn it down, destroy it, you know this we don't we don't want this anymore. We don't want this this uh, idol. We don't want this thing that costs you know a million dollars. Um, and then seeing like all of these. Conf- uh, conflicting responses of people saying, well, if somebody goes after that tree, we shoot them. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it's it's frustrating. And, and it really is, going back to that, and using your language of human, that we make ourselves superhuman and we make others subhuman. Or in this case, even like, they've gone from subhuman to subproperty. Mm-hmm. That we've... We've not just removed humanity from them, but we've we're, we're saying that not only are you not human, you're not even as valuable as my property. Like you're, I may as well just walk on you outside. Right, and I think, I think one of the one of the beautiful things about Christianity, and one of the beautiful things about ethics and morality in general, is just realizing that. In, in serving Jesus in, in following in following this guy we call God um, we are we are following a way of life that ultimately tells us that if any item in our life if any piece of property in our life causes us to to harm or, or see another person as less if anything that we own um, stands in the way of a life of another person then that thing ultimately needs to be done away with given up right right um yeah starbucks (laughs) i don't want to trivialize it you know like i have a friend who uh wrote a book called uh rewilding the way talking about creation care or as he calls it watershed discipleship Mm -hmm. and he names things that might sound trivial trivial to us like a netflix subscription um but you know he says we don't have to get rid of all of that stuff at once but we do need to make incremental steps toward that end where maybe the netflix subscription is the last thing that i get rid of but i'm no longer binging netflix i'm instead outside caring for the earth in his context or uh, or in his passions you know instead of uh spending all my money on starbucks i'm i'm contributing that to a 
worthwhile organization or investing in some neighbors or, you know, however that might look like. Because it's easy to rack up a, a pretty hefty tab at Starbucks. Um, but you do it, it kind of eats away at you little by little. And I think that's how um, idolatry works that, especially in, in the context of guns, like you get one gun um, and maybe similar to, similarly to tattoos, you know, I have a tattoo and I'm looking forward for the next one. Mm-hmm. But in the same way with the guns, like you get a handgun to protect yourself and then suddenly off, you also need a shotgun and then uh, an assault style rifle. And then you start collecting various versions of all of those and it mm-hmm. continually builds. You know, it spirals very quickly. <laughs> right, yeah, a small percentage, it's three or 4% of, the, of America's gun owners own 50% of the guns. It's it's unbelievably huge, and one of the uh, one of those people lives here just outside Colorado Springs, um, mm. and he's widely considered as the most armed man in America. Um, mm. It's just it's it's tragic to see those spirals develop and feel like it's you just can't get out, mm-hmm. right? And that, that I think actually takes us back to that dehumanizing factor. Cause you mentioned, you mentioned the guy in Colorado and I, for the life of me, can't remember his name or, or the title he goes by, but I remember the chapter in the book um, where, where you talk about him and you talk about how his gun business has effectively like destroyed his entire relationship with his family. He's had children like try to steal from him. He's had uh, his wife, I think died in a gun accident and seeing how quickly uh, the victimizer themselves are victims. And again, that goes with uh, that goes with the the Kenosha shooter, as we mentioned before, like this 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 kid, Kyle, committed these these horrible acts. But then when you actually like look at how he was conditioned, um, how he was brought up, it's like, well, that's a completely understand uh, not not justifiable, but an understandable response. Yeah. It's the logical end to what he was trained to do. Mm-hmm. And and I think I mean and that that we you can bring up like a million examples. You could bring up the uh, the Oklahoma City bomber, um, mm-hmm. Timothy McVeigh, and how I know I know that's mentioned uh, in the book, and I know uh, Shane Claiborne mentions that uh, again and again in books that he writes about how McVeigh wrote letters home when he was a soldier, talking about how he was feeling less and less human, and then he comes back and he does what he was trained to do, and for that the government kills him. Yeah, it's it's so tragic. Um, I I keep using that word, and I you know it's just such a tragedy can mean different things, right? Sometimes in the theater world it's more comical, and and other times in real life in traumatic situations it's devastating. Um, but in both situations, it starts to tear about the at the fabric of who we are and if we really believe in the imago day and that the imago day lives in each one of us we're not just dehumanizing us we're taking away that person's agency and and god's agency through them to act lovingly in our world mm-hmm. um and also not we're also blind blinding ourselves to our own capacity to be awful to each other like we we all hold those things um, and if and if we start cultivating our capacity for violence more and more, um, and at the same time kind of desensitizing ourselves to it, instead of cultivating our capacity for love, and at the same time sensitizing ourselves, being more sympathetic, empathetic, and compassionate when we see what violence does to other people. And that isn't just gun violence, but, you know, like the rejection of different peoples from church life or the inability for um, certain folks to, you know, help someone who has mental health problems. Um, because we know that people who uh, uh, struggle with mental health are w- much more likely to be the victim of crime than to be um, the perpetrator of it. And so um, we see these cycles and these systemic influences that can derail us and it's hard not to get back up if we don't have access to the resources that we need. And so while um, often the gun violence problem is usually in the context of individual choice, I think it's there because individualism is what the gun market feeds on. 
Um, and we need to take that back and say, no, gun violence is a community issue because it doesn't just affect the person who took their life with that gun. It, it affects uh, a recent study just said up to 135 people um, are affected by suicide. And so part of me wants to tell that I lost my mom to suicide, not by gun. But part of me was like, I wish back then I could tell her that there are over 100 people that care about you right now. And that's something that was just totally distant to her at that time, especially when she was at the lowest of her lows, right? And so it's not just that suicide affects more than just one people. It's that we are intimately connected to a lot of people, whether that's mm. through our work, our church, or you know, our daily life, whatever that is, we are connected to a lot of people. And so the, the um, echoes or ripple effects extend further beyond. Even we have this idea of 135 people affected by one suicide, but the, the weight and the trauma that that carries, I don't think we have any concept or to feel that. Mm -hmm. I think, I think in a lot of ways that speaks to, so in the, in the Christian, in the theological philosophical tradition, there's, there's this notion that when you get right down to it, when you cut through all of the, the, the masks, we'll say, um, there's no such thing as the individual, which mm -hmm. isn't to say that I don't exist and you don't exist, but is to say that, you know, it's not, it's not as though we sprung up creation ex nihilo. It's not as though we, we sprung up creation ex nihilo um, and, and sprung up out of holes in the ground. As, as Mr. Rogers said, uh, you know, we were all loved into being. I saw, I saw the math, mm. uh, I saw the math somewhere uh, where somebody did it, where, you know, we, all of us required, I think within even like five or six generations, some 2000 people to be who we are. Um, and that, that speaks to the, that speaks to how we are all products of our culture. We are all products of our society. Um, and, and it's not as though, uh, I mean, the individual actions are always, um, there's, there is that, that, you know, we all make our individual choices, but our choices come from our conditioning, um, yeah. ultimately. Um, and I think of, well, I, I think of, uh, I think of the Joker yeah. from, from Batman, um, not just in the, we live in a society meme. But, but that sense of whenever I hear that, that phrase of a good guy with a gun is the only guy who can stop a bad guy with a gun, I think of um, The Killing Joke written by Alan Moore, where the Joker is talking with Batman at one point. He's like, the only difference between you and I is one bad day. Yeah. Like one bad day is all that separates you from becoming the, quote, bad guy with a gun. Right. Yep. And or, or one bad moment. Mm -hmm. that it's 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 so fragile um and what as far as our conditioning you know i remember in college reading the prince of engaging the powers um, by walter wink mm -hmm. and he was the first person to introduce or to challenge the idea of original sin mm -hmm. that we weren't corrupt from the from birth right or um you know the idea that we cry as a baby does not make us evil as um, Augustine put it. Is that right, Augustine? I think mm -hmm. it was right. Augustine, Augustine, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, that we're not innately evil, but we do have, we have the capacity for, for life and death, for love and hate, that those things exist within us. And God calls us to cultivate that love as much as possible. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, when we cultivate love as much as possible, we create more better days in each other's life, right? The less possibility for that one bad day. Mm -hmm. And it, so it's a, it's a community effect that we have on each other. We don't get to, to live our lives ex nihilo either, right? We don't get to live our lives disconnected from everybody else. Mm -hmm. That just, that doesn't happen. We were born into connection and everything we do has an impact on somebody else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's that it's that recognizing the uh, the principality, the image of the uh, the rugged individual, the John mm -hmm. Wayne, uh, Clint Eastwood style, take the law into my own hands and do what it takes to to get my own at the end of the day. Um, recognizing that that's a lie. Uh, it's it's founded on a lie, and and yet it persists. Right. Yeah, I think you know that's what the gun industry really peddles to us that. Mm -hmm you are the most worth thing to yourself and that's all that matters that there is this constant force out there trying to bring you down and you need this gun to keep you up 
and back to what I was talking about earlier, that the only way to, to hold that up is to continually lift yourself up and become more superhuman and relegate others to subhuman. And, and that is, that to me is the tragedy of the current American life. Mm -hmm. Because we, we have in America, perhaps more so than most any other country, you know, this, this over-reliance on the individual, Mm -hmm. um, and this, this over-reliance on violence, um, to the point where that's kind of something the rest of the world makes fun of us about that, that we are, you know, the world policemen, that, 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 uh, stereotype um yeah and recognizing that there needs to be this ability this willingness this desire to to begin to push back that that or past that and be to work towards something that's that's different that's more life-giving um but i i recognize how again you know the 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 ideas of the the principalities push back um Mm -hmm. So I think, as an example of that, I think of the Black Lives Matter organization, how one of their stated goals is to disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family. Yeah. Um, and, and the nuclear family is so central to how we think in the, uh, in the American westernized world uh, that any, any threat towards that uh, even any perceived threat towards that uh, is has to be met with like a complete rejection of everything that says that. Even though what that's saying is not that we need to throw it out completely. It's saying that we need to be more willing to live into this idea of um, it takes a village to raise a child. Right. Yeah. And it's, I mean, and from a Christian's perspective, like Jesus tears that apart. Like, who is my mother? Who is my brother? And really gets like that idea of nuclear family goes, goes deep in a lot of cultures, not just the American culture, but in the American context, it's really ironic that the principalities pushed back at the Black Lives Matter movement when the principalities broke up the black family by imprisoning their fathers and their mothers. And they don't have any other choice but to depend on each other in those cases. And they've seen the value in that. They've seen the value of raising each other as a village and how much more powerful that could have that been if they had their mothers and fathers with them, right? So yeah, my wife and my kids are are extremely valuable to me, but I also want to raise them with my church. Like we committed to be in our church and to raise our kids amongst that community. Um, and I, it really still, I was talking about this with a friend the other day, you know, the idea that we're pushing back against that Black Lives Matter value is also pushing back against some of the deep values that Jesus calls us to. And so it's it's really an American individualistic response, like you said, to the Black Lives Matter movement, um, that this nuclear family is, you know, you have to have that white picket fence. And, and that it, not, not just that, but I, as a man, have to provide that, mm-hmm. right, as my individual. And, and recognizing that, this this notion that um you know a man has to raise a child like that sort of mentality like the father always has to be present and there's a degree where you know that there's a truth to that that children fathers parental figures are important but it ignores it it neglects the fact that when you actually look at human history uh the for the the vast majority of human history polygamy was the practice um, and if not polygamy, then, then these massive family units where, you know, there, there might be one husband and 15 mothers, or there might be a father and an uncle and a, more uncles and so on and so forth and grandparents and all of these people taking part in raising up the child. And that, for the majority of human history, being the norm. Yeah. Um, and the sense of, well, one mother, one mother, one father raising the child um, alone ignoring like you know even the presence of grandparents in the house or whatever uh that being a a more modern invention yeah for sure i like nursing homes like that's we can't care for you but also our communities aren't set up to have that multifamily, right like there are neighborhoods that are are marketed as single family homes 
right? Mm. You can't have multifamily setups in this neighborhood. And on top of that, there's higher market value for a single family home. And that's disturbing. Mm. Um, but, you know, as far as this idea too, that I have to protect me and mine, um, that hyper individualism, I think when you start encouraging kind of this raise each other as a village, it's harder and harder to point a gun at those people in your neighborhood, right? Because they're all helping you. Mm-hmm. And not only is it harder and harder, it becomes less necessary to own that firearm for self-defense because everybody around you is def- is a defense for you, right? Mm-hmm. And the more we keep expanding that, um, I think the more we get towards that vine and fig tree where we're in fear of no other. That It's not that we aren't afraid. It's that we know that we're surrounded by people who love us and we're going to, we're going to be much more oriented to, you know, opening the door and, and opening our arms to them than, you know, locking the door as somebody walks by kind of thing. And mm-hmm. I think that's just one of the beautiful me- mentalities of that call to um, rethink what the nuclear family is um, and to expand that to include, right? It can be a nuclear neighborhood instead. Mm-hmm. And I think of how, um, in many ways, technology has led to that. Um, in that, one of my one of my friends one of my friends would always would would talk about how much of the shift away from uh, the village mentality into the individual mentality into the family mentality has been, you know, the invention of automatic garage door openers and air conditioners the attached garage i talk about that a lot with people you know like we can get out of a car and never see a neighbor ever because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it, it used to be uh you know on a hot summer night you would sit outside yeah uh, because the house was way too hot to be inside right um but now because of you know central air conditioning now you could just like you said you can go straight into your garage go into your house and then just sit there and not ever have to go outside except for maybe going out into the backyard where everything's safe and we have our picket fence to protect ourselves from the thieves and robbers and uh, very bad people as our esteemed president might say. Right. Yeah. And you know, we can, we have that everything is attached to ourselves so that we don't need to extend beyond ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that addition of the air conditioners. Um, that's not, I mean, right now it's a, it's a big deal in Colorado, but 10 months out of the year, it's not a big deal. And so it's really interesting that we can like kind of insulate ourselves that way. Um, and how, how we design our homes is plays into that, how we introduce guns into our lives plays in that. So it's all a, it's all connected and it's real simple technology. It's not like the super advanced like, I don't want to park my car in the driveway uncovered anymore. Let's cover it with something. Oh, and let's attach it to our house so that when I get out of it, I don't have to say hi to my neighbors. Or, um, you know, everyone else, every one of us have a day where we just don't want to talk to anybody when we get home. Like, we just need to get to that spot to escape and rest. But for the most part, it really helps to get to know our neighbors and break down some of these pre preconceived notions of who we think they are or what they're capable of doing to us and realize that we're we're kind of manifesting our own capabilities onto other people like we're trying to also insulate ourselves from our worst self and Mm -hmm. saying i would never do that but that looks like somebody who might yeah i would I, I I would never use the it's a slippery slope argument because I think that's nine times out of ten poop. But and so I try to I try to use other other phrases and terminology. And I think of like maybe maybe another terminology might for it might or another analogy might be the Trojan horse effect, where it's it's not the big things. It's not like you said the the super technology, the smartphone necessarily. Uh, that that destroys us and, and begins to cause these cracks in our the way we treat each other and the way we think about each other. It's the it's the technology that's you know two or three generations old at this point right. that we don't even that we don't even really consider. Um, yeah, that our kids are born into, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we don't know what those technologies 
will look like three generations from now that they'll that they'll be able to establish the differences from because mm-hmm. i mean you mentioned starbucks before yeah about about needing to give up starbucks and recognizing that in terms of the principality it's in the terms of the principalities it's not just maybe needing to give up starbucks to be able to give more money to other people or to to invest that money in in more life-sustaining things be it businesses or other people uh but also recognizing the the harm that institution does and, sure. and again that gets back into the principality but seeing like how the subhuman living conditions and and pay and and wages that that the the producers of the coffee that starbucks gets yeah i for even I don't have to stop drinking coffee, but yeah, but but recognizing that you know we can have our coffee, uh, we can have potentially our chocolate, if we can find a way to do it without slavery, um, but but provided provided that people are paid along the way, and and I think again going into the technology aspect, we we have reached such a point in our society where we are able to just kind of consume things as though. Well, similar to how we see ourselves, they just kind of spring out of holes in the ground without recognizing that, well, the coffee, the the cocoa had to come from this place and the vanilla that goes into it had to come from this place. And who are, what are the names of the people that went into that? And it's like, well, we'll never even know because between capitalism and the technology that sustains it, um, we're not supposed to know. Right. Yeah. And I mean, we've built a very actually really good relationship with the barista at the Starbucks by our house, but it's worth examining. Like we also have a good relationship with a local coffee shop that's just blocks away that also roasts everything here. Um, and so that hundred bucks a month that might go to my wife and I's coffee that, you know, we don't think it's a hundred bucks a month until we look back on it. Right. But we could be putting that into our community and it stays in the community instead of goes to this big corporate machine. Right. Mm-hmm. But, um, and so we, we bounce back and forth often. That's where we find like, that is a struggle for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, this, this idea of the, the technology, and I think that's part of the beauty of turning swords into plowshares that it's almost like a, like a swords were a form of kind of high tech and to go back to a plowshare is kind of a way to like slow down. It becomes less dependent on yourself and more dependent on a community effort right yeah i can plow and sow all these all these fields but it helps when other people help me do that or help with the harvest but it's not just going to feed me it also makes me um, more aware of creation as well that i don't get to i play a part in bringing that seed to harvest but i really depend on nature i depend on um, learning the cycles of when seeds are best to be planted, like that's and that's decentering myself and centering that life instead. Um, but then this whole kind of I th- I, in the book, I think we move. I mentioned it, moving from kind of this individual, um, this illusion of like individual, uh, like instant justice, right? That a gun kind of gives us the illusion of to this seasonal patience of community life Mm -hmm. and that those seasonal kind of um uh times of the year are very valuable for us like we put a lot of we invest a lot in planting and taking care of but it's also just as valuable that winter of rest to get ready for the next season again so um i think it's it's important to us for us to recognize that um, kind of all this tech have kind of removed all of those natural cycles of life and allowed us or give us the illusion that we can create our own, right? Mm-hmm. That we can empower ourselves to have um, these seasons and we might call it career and retirement and that we're in charge of those seasons of our life. Um, where if we slow down, we can kind of really be with each other at a slower pace and, and um really allows us to care for each other in much more life-giving ways Mm -hmm. um so i think that's also the beauty of this idea of turning guns into garden tools we're not just changing that that form of technology but we're also um 
a product of that is is changing the way we live our life as well. Karl Marx would be proud of us for this conversation. Um, <laughs> I yes, um, and I, I say that kind of tongue in cheek. I say that kind of honestly because that was that was very much like Karl Marx's vision of of what uh, society would look like. Um, that sense of being uh, not only not only well not just self-reliant because that's that's also one of those things that we like to throw out in american society as well how self-reliant i am but it's like well no community reliant um, yeah. might be a better term so recognizing that hey i don't have to produce all of my own food um it could be more of like that that older style um we'll say of a barter of of different people providing different things yeah it's like um, a potluck yeah. And so, and so I think of like, I try to, I try to envision like what would, what would our community here in, in small town Michigan look like if we were able to live more into that, that older style of being like I could be the town blacksmith. <laughs> um, sure. And, and certain people, a lot of people in this area, the town farmers um, and, and be able to actually provide food for their community versus growing a million pounds of corn that will be shipped off to become gas right and and recognizing how that's actually a more a more life-giving form it's not as convenient um and that's really what we crave it seems like is convenience um but when we actually like if we were actually to qualitatively look at it it's more sustainable it's more life-giving it's more communal yeah yeah, I think one of the things that my family is mourning is that our church does like a Thanksgiving potluck every year. And I think it is like it when we're thinking of like preparing a big meal for our family, it's pretty laborious to, to be in charge of, you know, all of the main pieces of that. Where if I know I just have to make one side and I bring it and we share it with everybody, it's so much, it, it feels more convenient to me. So I think there's a little bit of both there that, you know, like, there's part of the community that when we become more barter or, or open to sharing our resources with each other, that also brings convenience too. That there's, um, there's this kind of simplicity to it that we don't need all these um, fancy things to bring convenience, right? We don't, we don't need DoorDash. Uh, we, can, we can kind of embody that in bringing something to a potluck. Right, we, we yeah, yeah, we, we we've created the illusion of convenience. Um, when it, when, yeah, what it really just means is convenience perhaps for us at the expense of others, or even, even when we really think about it, like we're actually sacrificing convenience for ourselves. Yeah. Um, yeah. Convenience is probably the largest, largest producer of waste in our mm -hmm. country. Mm -hmm. Just single use things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, to, to take it back, I guess, for a moment to, to the guns conversation. I, so I think of, I think of the, I, I mentioned it before, like the, the purpose of a gun, like what, what does, what is the gun designed to do? And that's why when my, in my own life, like I have this uh, differing mentality of a gun that's a rifle, a hunting rifle. Um, that has, you know, six six rounds or the capability of holding six rounds to to shoot a deer, to go hunting, to to shoot whatever whatever it is you might be hunting. Versus again, like an AR-15, which has a hundred round magazine and it's specifically designed to shoot people. Right. And so so thinking about that that mentality of like what is it like ten percent of people own ninety percent of the guns or something like that. Yeah, three percent on fifty percent. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I think I think in my own life of how that holds true because you know when you talk about how when you get when you get one gun when you get one gun one weapon suddenly you're like getting more and more and more. Um, and you know I I am raised I was raised in a, a hunting family. My family hunts. My family does all that stuff. Um, and I I imagine you being in Colorado, that's a very similar case because I know there's a, a wide hunting uh, culture in Colorado as well. Um, and like, as you were, as you were talking before about that, I was like, well, counting, counting the hunting rifles and, and things that I myself own under lock and key, you know, stored away. So 
somebody can't just grab a hold of it. But um, that that aspect of of thinking about how this is this is designed for the purpose of providing food of um, that sort of thing versus what is the purpose of an AR-15? What is the purpose of a handgun? What is the purpose of X, Y, Z? Yeah, and I think I think handguns are the most dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not just because they're easily to conceal, but they're often um, and they can hold quite a they can hold you know over a dozen bullets too. So you can mm-hmm. kill a lot of people very fast. Um, and the idea the it's largely known that the most dangerous gun is the gun that's owned for self-defense, not because um, it's the biggest or has the highest capacity, but because it's often loaded and unlocked, that it's the most accessible because if someone really is breaking into your house, the last thing you want to do is, is have to get into your safe to defend it. And mm-hmm. so that immediately becomes the most dangerous one or um, you know, it's in your car or easily accessible there. Um, it might be hidden in a in a glove box or a compartment, but it doesn't take much to get to it. Um, and I think when we, that kind of illustrates the tension that we find ourselves in with, I want to defend myself, but I know that often the best way, and there are some creative ways to get around this um, as far as, you know, like hidden safes and things like that, or uh, fingerprint technology now um, but it's interesting that the the gun industry won't endorse that kind of thing um, they're afraid that uh, like a, a ring on your trinker finger um, or a fingerprint sensor will be required on all guns if you start developing it in one gun and it's interesting that that isn't kind of championed among the gun industry um, it's and think it is probably championed more among gun owners than it is the gun lobby um, because their their main purpose is to keep as little regulation around gun ownership as possible mm-hmm. regardless of the life that it takes um, and I think I think that's the that's kind of the space to to wrestle with that if because most uh, buying a gun for self-defense is the number one reason to buy a gun um, it's not sport shooting that's up there hunting is up there too but self-defense is far and away the number one reason to buy a gun and sometimes there's multiple purposes right um but when you're when you're going hunting or going to the range to practice you're essentially practicing something that takes the life of another thing um and because i think it's it's important to value life beyond just human i'm not a vegetarian or vegan but um that same mentality we take to um, recognize what people went through to bring Starbucks to our cup. We also need to recognize, you know, what life might have been taken for this to be on my plate, and um, and kind of take, you know, a very indigenous respect for the sacredness of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think um, that's lost. We've completely disconnected from that in the American context of gun ownership. So the purpose, you know, there's you don't, you don't point that gun at, you're not taught to point that gun at yourself or anybody else until you're an adult and you can use it for Mm self-defense. And so there's this, um, there's this idea that not just the purpose of a gun, but that there's this purpose of adulthood to owning a gun um, in the American life, I think. So um, I think when we talk about the purpose of a gun, we also have to talk about, especially in our context in America, the purpose of what it means to be an American. Mm. So much of gun ownership is wrapped up with that. Yeah, I, I think of, you, you talk about the respectability, um, respecting respecting where our food comes from. And I think about the, the food that we do, that my wife and I do produce, or the food that I've produced in the past. Um, you know, we've, we have chickens and, and we had a rooster that was, uh, attacking the other chicken that it is attacking the hens and attacking our dog. And so we had to, we had to do away with it. We had to kill it. Um, and I, I think of watching, watching my wife do it because she was the one who, who volunteered and the one who's done it before and knew how to do it. And like seeing how, seeing that sort of reverence that comes into the picture when you're, you're preparing your own chicken effectively to some degree a pet um, versus just, 
grabbing a, a pack of drumsticks off the supermarket shelf. Yeah. Um, I think, I think back to my own, um, you know, talking about, talking about my own experience or thinking about my own experience of hunting in the past and like the process of, of having shot, uh, and killed deer. Um, and that, that emotional response, that emotional uh, attachment, um, mm -hmm. to an animal and like, uh, uh, seeing that and feeling that and, you know, I'm, I'm to the point now where I don't know if I could ever do that again. Right. Um, but, but there's a difference again, between like just getting a hamburger from the, the, the store or the restaurant, um, and not even having to like consider like the cow, the life that went into this, uh, versus walking up to a deer that, you know, you had to shoot, uh, and watching the life fade from its eyes and like, thinking about you know what does this mean in terms of of where my food comes from and how i think about this right um who made myself emotional there okay. <laughs> but, but but yeah and i i think that's always i think that's an important um aspect in terms of beginning the beginning to open dialogue with people because i mentioned I mentioned to you when when talking about um, beginning the process of of beginning uh, Raw Tools Michigan or whatever it might be called um, of of considering including like a hunter safety training at course in that um, to to begin to open some of those doors um, with people who might otherwise just be utterly uninterested, utterly unwilling to listen. Um, and thinking about how and then and then having to go back and think about my own journey from where I was to where I am now um because you know believe it or not I was once that red-blooded conservative kid who <laughs> thought about the world in a certain way and now I am where I am um but but think about how that didn't just happen overnight but was instead a, a, a journey of steps yeah yeah I think um one of the lessons that I I took from one of my college professors and I'm not gonna I don't know I don't know the the correct source to to put with this but there's a philosophy that you know um, if you take a mathematical approach that you can divide something by two forever but you will never get to zero mm. um, but the biggest step is always that first division or that first kind of kind of a bite into the apple. You know, that um, when your life starts to change, it's often that first step that is the hardest, but that each step after that is smaller and smaller and closer and closer to the goal, right? If we're to be perfect as our father in heaven is perfect, I think it's mostly about that journey of continually taking that next step not necessarily achieving perfection. Um, and I think I'm very, my mind is very linear. So thinking about that mathematically is really helpful to me to say that I don't have to jump from a hundred to zero at once, but I can go from maybe a hundred to 50, or maybe it's not even in, in twos, but I can go to a hundred to 90 and then to 80 or, and then maybe I can get to 40, but you know, we continually make these, these, um, kind of fractional improvements that we can look back and, and feel like, wow, I've come a far, a long way. Um, and that's not necessarily to say that where you were was evil or anything mm -hmm. like that, but that you chose to improve upon whatever that was. And then you you continually make a commitment to improve. Um, and when we look at the context of, of Jesus and what Jesus calls us into and what God calls us into, it's, it's that loving of our neighbor and continually making another step. And maybe that, you know, is, I, I don't have an attached garage that wasn't intentionally planned because we've lived in places with that before, but we know our neighbors now much quicker and faster than we did when we had an, an attached garage. And that's one of those little steps that we could take. Maybe it might mean I have to warm up my car and be more intentional in the morning, you know, before I go places than I did with a garage. But, um, it means that I'm going outside and I might run into my neighbor when I do that. Um, I might run into somebody walking to the bus stop when I do that. And I think those little steps often make the next step easier. 
but that first one is really hard um and i think it's just a an ongoing commitment to be involved that you know kind of this idea of being born again every day instead of like just when i said the sinner's prayer or walk the roman road that that's something that we need to believe in the resurrection every time we wake up that it's not just this thing that hope happened a long time ago and that means something um for you know soteriologically that it means something towards salvation it does but it also has implications for how we live our everyday life and for me the more and more i'm around victims of gun violence the more and more i see guns as uh, a product that keeps us further from each other instead of a product that keeps us closer to each other um and certainly that's not every gun is the same like you mentioned so the hunting gun that's locked up in a safe under lock and key somewhere else um is a very different topic than what we're talking about with handguns and assault rifles and shotguns and, and all those kinds of things so um especially when you talk about people saying the ar-15 is all of those in one right it can be my hunting gun it can be my self-defense gun it can be you know, all of those things, my target practice, sure it can, but that opens us up or pushes us away from each other. Even if you feel like it's just incrementally, incrementally and not really doing something, it is just like an attached garage can, mm -hmm. but it incrementally starts to push us away. And I think, I think a lot of it can be, can be answered by the simple question of what is, what is the target that you're shooting at? When you take that out to the target range, what are you shooting at? Mm -hmm. It's like a, a hunting rifle. You take it out, you're shooting at uh, a deer target. You're shooting at a rabbit target. You're shooting at whatever the case might be. When you take a shotgun to the range, you're shooting at clay pigeons. Right. Um, when you, when you look at, when you look at what people are shooting at with AR-15s or with handguns consistently, uh, they're, uh, there are targets that are made to look like people. Yeah. It's oftentimes specific people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Either, uh, either those scary Arabs. <laughs> right. Or, or those scary thugs. Right. Or, or whatever the case might be. Or the color of the other political party. You know, mm -hmm. it's just, it's little things that, you know, I think most people would say if that, the, if there's a target of a specific person, you've crossed the line. I think, 99% of people would say that's not healthy. Um, but it's the incremental steps that the person took to get to putting that image up there, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think that there's, we have to examine all of that. That gun violence just doesn't happen ex nihilo, if we're to use that again, that things happened along the way that led the shooter to Kenosha. Things happened along the way that led someone to take their own life. You know, they had that one bad day or multiple bad days. And if we can work to loving each other so that we have multiple good days, then we will remember those instead of, and less and less those, those one bad days or the, mm -hmm. the bad days won't be so much bad as they were like, man, that was a stressful day, but I had a community that helped me out of it. Or I had a significant other that helped me out of it. Or I heard my kids laughed and it, it snapped me out of it. And that the more and more we surround ourselves with those good moments and those good days, um the better as a community we will be and i i think everything that jesus does calls us into that mm -hmm. i think i'm reminded of one of my seminary professors from back back in my days of seminary of think of um responding being forced to like consider like that the entire notion of the question of are you saved are you saved blah 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 um and and instead thinking about it of as not like a, I'm, I'm saved as like a one and done kind of thing um i'm being saved every day mm -hmm. um like like uh much like love it's a it's an action verb not a noun it's something that's ongoing right and has you know oftentimes you go to a dictionary and you'll see like four or five definitions and that first one is really predominant. But with love, you see like four or five predominant different ways that it expresses itself, mm -hmm. um, unlike um, other aspects or other definitions that there's, it's almost like you need four different words instead. And the English language messed it up and put it into one. 
Yeah. Well, normally I like to end uh, by asking, uh, you know, pushing the conversations towards things that are more hopeful because with a lot of these conversations, they can kind of really dip. Uh, yeah. But I think I think the way you kind of ended there, I think that was actually I think you kind of brought us out of that dip, <laughs> uh, whether you intended to or not. Um, and so I, to respect your time, um, I think that's about I think that that closes it off pretty well. Good. Um, and so I guess uh, the first thing I'll do is we'll kind of close out, and then uh, you can show me that jig and how it works and everything. Perfect. Um, and so the first, thank you for joining us, first of all. Um, I guess the question that I've asked uh, previous people that I've spoken with is, um, what do you, are there any reading recommendations that you would make? Anything like that? Uh, well, given our current context of um, racism in America, there's two books. Actually, there's three that I'm in the middle of. One is The Color of Law. Um, the other one is uh, End of Policing, and the last one is Jesus and the Disinherited by Howard Thurman. Um, and I'm kind of reading them all together depending on how my day went as to which one I pick up. If I'm really mad at systems, I pick up Color of Law or End of Policing. And if I really want to dive into some some heavy Jesus work, I'm picking up Jesus and the Disinherited. Mm -hmm. Very good. And I read... Uh because because you had posted it on Facebook a while back, I, I ended up reading uh, Stand Your Ground mm. uh, by Kelly Round Douglas, and I found that uh, very enlightening, both in terms of understanding how white supremacy developed and became what it is. Because uh, like the whole the whole movement from Anglo-Saxon supremacy into white supremacy, like I thought that was fascinating and very enlightening. Um, and very intentional with our American construction mm -hmm. and really getting into that what, what we talked about before that sense of you know cherished white property um, and so thank you I will I will include those recommendations down in the show notes I like to do that uh, so thank you Mike for joining us and we will be back next week that was great to be with you again thanks for having me yeah it was very good this was a great conversation <laughs>